Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 30. We'll start in verse 25, Genesis 30, verse 25, and we'll read uh, through the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is God's own word. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it is increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now... When shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flocks. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the trough, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks and the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 5. Our sermon text is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. This is God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil 
and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your son, that you sent him, and that we sit at his feet as the one who is seated on your mountain and the one of whom you have proclaimed. Uh, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and thus we know that all that he spoke is good and right and true. So we ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive from his word, and you would minister to us as only you can, as you have promised to do, as you have promised to send your Spirit forth, attending the word, that you would prepare for it hearts receptive, good soil, Lord, into which you sow the only seed that can give life. We pray, Lord, that we would marvel at Christ as he leads us in such a a magnificent instruction, but ultimately of your excellencies on display in the sending of Christ, the sending of the Son, uh, to retrieve sinners from their lost and helpless estate. We ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to do these things, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. My favorite scene in War and Peace is also one over which I am deeply conflicted. The scene is between the hero or one of the heroes of the novel, Prince Andre, whom you've come to love by this point in the novel, Uh, and his coming face-to-face with his enemy, uh, Anatole Kurigan. Anatole Kurigan has uh, stolen Prince Andre's fiancée, Natasha. Uh, He's deceived her. Uh, He is a wicked man, a playboy of sorts, uh, where Prince Andre is a good man. And so Anatole Kurigan has stolen Natasha from him. He's stolen the prospect of earthly happiness from Prince Andre. And this has left him vulnerable and alone. And then the two characters come face to face in this scene of intense vulnerability. And Tolstoy has prepared you for this, but you don't know how it's going to unfold. Here's the man that has taken everything from Prince Andre. And here they meet. And in what is universally regarded as Uh, One of the most moving scenes in all of literature, Tolstoy sets forth Prince Andre in a moment of remarkable compassion, seeing not an enemy, but a man, a broken man. And out of extreme pity, he forgives him everything. He forgives his enemy everything. 
He forgives the one who literally took happiness from him, everything. And you believe it. And it's beautiful. And it's regarded as magnificent. The world of believer, unbeliever alike. Everybody sees it. This is remarkable. This is beautiful. Up until a point. Because a part of you hates Tolstoy for doing that to you. Because you liked hating Anatole. In a way, the world was simpler when you could just regard him as a monster. Someone who wasn't worth considering as a man. Someone who didn't deserve your pity, let alone your love. The conflict is that this is remarkable. This exchange is remarkable. This display of love is remarkable. The one who didn't deserve it. And therein lies the remarkability of the love. And yet, you hate it. Because it takes from you something. You lose something. That's kind of the dirty secret, isn't it? We love our hate. We love our hate. That's why we like to feed it in the dark. Nobody's around. We sow to it. We rehearse it. We like to see it grow. Swell. It becomes a part of us. An indispensable part of us. So if, if you take that from me, what am I? Where am I? This is obviously one of the highest peaks in a rather impressive mountain range of teaching. <laughs> this passage is known by nearly everyone. It's even worked its way into our common parlance, hasn't it? We have here the excellencies of Christianity distilled plainly. The excellencies of our God plainly set forth. The excellencies of our King plainly set forth. And we also have the very real difficulty of grappling with our hearts as his children, which are still rather in love with hating people. <laughs> with identifying someone as our enemy and secretly loving the self-justification that we come up with in saying, yes, that person is God's enemy. And so I hate them. That's what Christ confronts here. I mean, these are the teachers of God's law that somehow have worked it into their arsenal. Love your neighbors, hate your enemy, thus says the Lord. So God's people have come to that conclusion at this point in the history of God's people. Somehow, they've read God's word, they've reflected upon providence, they've reflected upon God's word, and they've landed on, God says, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. So the very first thing we should say is that we're vulnerable to baptizing our personal hatred into the name of God. We are all vulnerable to that. And you know you do this. 
person that irritates you a little bit at church, you're like, well, I'm pretty sure they're not a Christian. You start to question their salvation, right? For Israel, it's easier. It's like, well, are they a Jew? No. Well, God probably hates them. (laughs) For us, it's a little bit harder. Do I dislike them? Yes. Are they irritating? Yes. Are they a Christian? Well, they go to church. They're probably not a real Christian. You've done it. 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 We've done it. They did it. So before we kind of get on our high horse and be like, how could you read the Bible and come to that conclusion? We'll just take a look at your heart. (laughs) That's how they did it. The same impulse that leads you to question the salvation of someone who irritates you is how they got here. Just wait. If you haven't been convicted yet, I'll just give you time. We're vulnerable to the half-truths that we love to cling to to justify the worst tendencies of our own heart. But Christ sends forth something magnificent here. He truly does. And what does he set forth? He sets forth who God is. That's what he sets forth here. The excellencies of Christianity are on display, not chiefly as we look at one another, although we should see them there. (laughs) The excellencies of Christianity are chiefly on display when we look at God and how he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Christ here reminds us of that refrain that we love. The refrain that I shoved down your throats pretty regularly, which you should love and we're coming to love. And it's that God is good. So simple, right? You learn that as a kid. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for our food. I've been praying that since I was four years old. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for our food. Yeah, God is good. And it's true. There's some remarkably good theology in our children's arsenals. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's a good one, too. Don't throw that out. (laughs) God is good. God is great. Don't throw that out. Fill it with understanding. God is good. That's what he sets on display here. That's what you have to grapple with before you get to this incredible call which Christ truly does issue to his disciples here. Do not mistake verse 48 as some standard which he has no expectation of us striving to reach after. Shame on you if you do, because you've missed what he's doing. But before we even get to the incredible call, the height of the Christian call to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you've got to hear who God is. And the thing that Christ sets forth about who God is here as he issues that incredible call is that God is good. Not just a little good. Not just sometimes good. Not just good to some, 
Always good. Always good. Always good. That's thrice. He's most good. <laughs> He's the best. So what does he want us to see here in the goodness of God? God gives rich gifts, doesn't he? So the goodness of God is on display in the richness of his gifts. I'm a very bad gift giver. Don't ask my wife about the particulars of that, please. <laughs> I'm ashamed that I even say that because it kind of... It, You can be good. I'm, I'm just thoughtless. I'm just thoughtless. I just don't take the time. You could be good. You could be good. You've got it in you. You've got a PhD. You could be better. I'm talking to myself. I don't know why I'm in the rafters. <laughs> I'm not a good gift giver. I've not given good gifts historically. Every now and then I'll stumble into something. Look at the richness of the gifts on display here. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Light, heat, the ref water, <laughs> drinkable water, <laughs> light, heat, water, those are good gifts. We don't see it now because we live in this economy of surplus and gadgets. It's like, well, he doesn't give iPads. It's like, because he loves you, he doesn't give you an iPad. He gives you the sun. I've been waking up early. This is amazing. Like, it's even like happening at like the scientific level now. Like everyone's saying like, hey, do you, do you want to make sure your body works the way it's supposed to work? First thing in the morning, go outside, expose yourself to the sun. It's amazing what happens at a neurological level when your body just drinks in sunlight. It's like infusing life into your body. It's almost like God designed it that way. But I need some like neuroscientist at Stanford to tell me to do it. It's like, no, like, it's, it's the sun. He gives the sun. I wake up early, I go outside on the porch before the kids wake up and just like drink in the sun. I'm like, oh, this is a good gift. Live through a Minnesota winter and tell me it's not a good gift. The warmth, like you literally feel life filling your body when you go outside. You feel the breeze, you feel the air, you feel the sun. Some of us go to Arizona in February just to live. It's a good gift. He gives it. Sun, rain. It's difficult to really appreciate the richness of the things that we take for granted. By definition, because we take them for granted. I've told the story a number of times of John Newton losing his hearing late in life. Could you imagine that? All of a sudden you're just whoop, vacuum of silence. That's your existence now. All the music you love, gone. The voice of your loved ones, gone. The birds, gone. And then he regained it, and he emerged saying, I am convinced that the gifts we so regularly presume upon are some of the richest this world has to offer. God is good. 
sun and moon here is just a glimpse into all of those gifts that God gives across the board. Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. Those aren't beggarly gifts. That's a king opening his treasury and saying, here, think of the garden. It's all yours. It's it's all yours. Eat from any tree. Save this one. It's a picture of abundance. It's a picture of richness. But mark how easily we get mistaken about God's very character. Somehow he's miserly. Somehow he begrudges kindness. We seize upon those relatively isolated incidents where things are hard, and conveniently we neglect the 90% of the time when things are easy. It's like, I knew it! He's good, and not barely. He's also remarkably consistent in his goodness, isn't he? Rain, sun, sun comes up every morning. By and large, we use the phrase, regular it's the rain. (laughs) These aren't things which have happened, I don't know, once every 30 or 60 years. These are things which mark God's creative order. Sun, then moon. Sun, then moon. Seed time, then harvest. Seed time, then harvest. That's the very promise that he made in Genesis 8. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God made that promise. He says it's going to continue. Don't worry. (laughs) There's going to be a couple of kings that arise here and there. They're going to think, I can overthrow the cosmic order, and the Lord is going to kill them. Where are they? Ozymandias, where are you? Where are you, Ozymandias? Sea time and harvest remains. Day and night remains. Kings that thought that they could eradicate the cosmic order, they are not here anymore. God is faithful to his promise. The consistency with which his goodness is on display is remarkably refreshing. I can barely remember a promise I made walking out the door. I get across the street and I've forgotten what I've told my wife I'm going to do. So I get the call, hey, did you do that? I'm like, I, did, I forgot it as soon as I said I would do it. I didn't do it maliciously, but that's what happened. <laughs> Since the flood, seed time, harvest, day, night, cold, heat, God gives these gifts. He's faithful in his goodness. You can also notice his goodness is on display in the recipients of his goodness. It's not just the good, it's the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Right before he makes the promise to sustain creation in Genesis 8, the Lord notes that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood didn't eradicate wickedness, and yet God's goodness was not thereby eradicated. His goodness 
takes on a more incredible aspect when we consider that he gives these gifts to the ill-deserving. We start here to get a sense of the divine excellence. It's not just to the good that he gives good gifts. He gives it indiscriminately. Mark, if you haven't had this experience with God, consider your life prior to coming to Christ. Mark how much goodness adorned your life prior to coming to Christ. Did you thank him for it? I mean, the very things we're talking about, the sun, creation, bread, wine, vitality, sight, scent, touch, all five senses, two of which just eluded me. They're given to you. Prior to Christ, did you thank him for it? Coming to Christ, have you thanked him for it? When was the last time you went to bed at night? Lord, thank you once more for sustaining me with the gift of sight for another 24 hours. Thank you. Thank you that my cells are still somehow generating enough energy for me to go about the day. That's a pretty incredible process. Learning more about mitochondria. The body's amazing. You got these little powerhouses that are just like, I can do this. Then my mind is like, do this, or do this, or do this, or do this. So thank you. That's incredible that that hasn't stopped. What was the time you thanked him for it? The withholding of thanksgiving is perhaps one of the most severe indictments of the fallen world. They did not thank him as God. Think about how irritated we get when we don't get thanks, right? We're all like George in Seinfeld. I should have handed her the big salad. The big salad was from me. It's pop culture. We go from Tolstoy to Seinfeld. It's like, I deserve thanks. I did this. I deserve thanks. Why didn't I get thanks? Think about the gifts he gives and how little they, even as his people, we're starting to feel like, oh, wow, we don't thank him all that often. I mean, for the rich, I mean, we, I don't know how you break that down in terms of how much of his goodness I see and then relate that to how much I thank him for. It's a pretty small percentage, and it gets smaller. How much I thank him for earnestly. Hmm. How much I see, how much do I thank him for, how much I earnestly thank him for. The percentage just keeps getting smaller. And yet he continues to give continues to welcome us week in and week out. He continues to assure us, I love you. I love you. I, I don't know. I don't know. But he knows. <laughs> He's like, I've made that very plain. It's very plain. I assure you. But his goodness to this world extends in that he instructs his children to petition him for their good. That's striking. Don't overlook that feature of his goodness here. Beloved, you are God's children now. And as his children, he says, I want you to ask me to do good to the people who hate me. And that's another iteration of his goodness. 
When Christ returns and he makes all things known and he shows the unbeliever the extent of the goodness that he has poured out upon them, one of the evidences of his goodness will be the churches praying for the lost. Are you praying for the lost? Pray for the lost. It's God's goodness to them. We don't know how it's going to work out. But we know that the Father who has loved us, the Father who is lavish in His goodness, has instructed us to reflect that goodness in the form of praying for the lost. It pleases Him, and it is His particular gift of goodness to them. Don't deprive them of that. It's the Father's design. He's good in the richness of his gift. He's good in the consistency of his gifts. He's good in giving it indiscriminately. He's good in getting his children to pray for good for those who don't deserve it. And he's supremely good in sending the Son. That's the choicest iteration of God's goodness to this sad world. It's not in causing the sun to rise. It's in causing the sun to rise. Sending him in the fullness of time to stand in the stead of sinners. To showcase to a world that had contented itself with delusional notions of God who God really is. Because that's what Christ is. Paul and John join in marveling at the otherworldly love of God. Paul writes in Romans 5, 7 and 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Paul's reasoning along a very similar line as the Lord is reasoning. He says, look, Gentiles can greet those who greet them. Tax collectors love those who love them. Paul says, you could imagine dying for a good or a righteous person. Gift, worthy recipient. But what marks the distinctive of the divine love? God shows his own love for us in this while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that's another worldly love. That's, that's an otherworldly love. The giving of the Son in the stead of enemies? Now, we've brushed up against that before, haven't we? Some of us have sons. My son is not perfect. My son is already showcasing some of my tendencies. And yet I wouldn't give him for an enemy. I'm not even sure I would give him for a friend. God shows his own love, the divine love, the otherworldly love in this. While you were his enemy, he sent his son. 
Oh, refresh us with that truth. It's something we hear so often, but to penetrate its depths. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It's a power, it's a love, it's a heart. It's impossible to fathom. John says the same thing. First John 4, 9. In this is God's love made manifest. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. They're marveling at the same reality. Do you feel it? Paul's marveling from one end. He's like, while we were sinners, he died for us. John's marveling at another end. He's like, it's not that we loved him first. And for John, John's book is a book of binaries. Light, darkness, truth, lie, love, hate. Him saying it's not that we first loved him is him saying we were in a state of enmity with God. And he loved us by sending his only son to stand in the stead of sinners. What other worldly love? Church, do you see how rich God's love is? It's the same error we make with reference to his goodness, that somehow he's just barely good. Somehow he just barely tolerates me. He gave his son to make you his own. There's nothing more precious. There is no act of love more profound for a father to do than to give his only son for you, to you, so that you would be his. Because that's the last act of the story, isn't it? It wasn't this effectless act that he did. It was a love that transformed. It made you into children. It changed things. That's power. That gets us close to God's power. King Arthur got to the end of his reign. He realized, I am very strong, and I have a lot of impressive knights. I have power. Why can't I create good? He says, I can keep evil back with this power. As a king, I can, I can marshal my knights to drive out dragons by brute force. I can marshal my knights to kill giants. I can marshal my knights to restrain chaos. But in the wake of restraining chaos, I have no power to produce good. Why? Only the gospel can produce good. That's the best man can do with his power, is restrain evil. He's got no power to produce good. God's love poured out in Christ is another worldly power because it truly brings about love. It's not that we first loved him, but that he first loved us. But then what does John go on to say? 
beloved, if God so loved us, let us love one another. It's the act of love that brings about by its power the response of love. It's a power that creates good. It's otherworldly. Children, bask in the delight of God's love. I want you to know how much God loves those who look to Christ. I want you to know how much those in Christ are loved by the Father. Not sometimes, not barely, not temporarily, but profoundly, inexhaustibly, dimensionlessly. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Ephesians 3, I bow my knee before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does he want you to know there? What does he see as the source of the church's strength? What does he see as the fullness from which he would have us live in the face of a world that very well might hate you? Christ's love which surpasses knowledge. That's what he wants you to be rooted in, to be grounded in, to find as your well spring. If you know Christ, I assure you, you are well loved by God. Because that's what he says. <laughs> the language here he uses is remarkably fitting to be filled with all the fullness of God. Because the entire portrait that emerges from Matthew 5 is one of abundance. Isn't it? It's one of an inexhaustible giving, giving, giving. He gives, he gives, he gives because he has fullness, inexhaustible fullness, a non-diminishing fullness. And that's what Paul envisions us being rooted in, that you may be full of the fullness of God, which he then associates with the love of Christ, which surpasses understanding. So the only way you're going to be able to hear this last passage, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is if you hear the first part. That because God loved you, you are equipped with God's fullness. The word perfect here, probably not ideal. We think perfect and we... We think probably judicial terminology, like I got a perfect on my test, I passed, I got every answer right. That's what we think, probably. But it's frequently used in sacrificial language to be without blemish, to be whole. But perhaps here, the better translation would be Lacking nothing. Therefore, lack nothing 
as your heavenly Father lacks nothing. To me, that makes sense as he calls us into this reflection of abundance, wherein we are to see that the fullness into which he invites us to draw from is not found within ourselves, but found in the fact that he is our Father, and he has taken us to himself in an act of love by giving the Son And that that act of love has secured us against everything that might harm us in this world. Things will hurt us in this world, but for the children, nothing will harm you in this world. Because you are secure in the Father's love. That's why every furnace turns into... Not something that destroys us, but something that refines us. Every flood turns into not something that drowns us, but something in which we find the ark of God's mercy sustaining us. Another way to say this is, there's no way for you to love your enemy if you are not a child of God. You might be able to glance at it as a nice thought. But at the end of the day, you're going to be like me reading War and Peace. Part of you going to be like, I hate that. <laughs> and I'm not doing it. The love which he has extended unto us and making us his children. Notice here, he says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Meaning what? It's not love your enemy so that you will be a son. He's already saying, your sons. Your sons. He's saying, in this way, and perhaps in this way uniquely, you resemble your father. You look like your father. The world glimpses the truth of who God is. In the love that you extend, not to those who love you, not to those who greet you, but to those who persecute you, to those who have set themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ. So here are the three calls in this. It is love the enemy, pray for the enemy, and be perfect as the Father is perfect. Jesus has just taught that in an exchange of harm, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We're not looking to repay harm. But there it's just an exchange. Here he invites us to consider the person. And that the call is to earnestly desire the person. Here, love your enemy. It's not just a begrudging rendering of good. It's not just a bare eking out of a benefit for someone, hoping that eventually from somebody else they get theirs. (laughs) It's a love of this person. I think the second instruction is one of the most practical instructions the church has. Pray for those who persecute you. In many ways, the powers, the true powers that were persecuting the church were removed from the church's experience. 
You know, these local governors executing orders from on high. You look at even the exchange between Pliny and Trajan. It's like Pliny is just a piece of this bigger thing. So even if I meet a regional governor, I'm not going to meet the big thing, the person who's removed. What then? Are we absolved from doing them good? No. Pray for those who persecute you. As those who have been made the recipients of God's grace and mercy in Christ, how fitting is it that we pray that God's grace and mercy in Christ would extend unto others? We see this already in the Old Testament and the errors that are confronting us. Think of Abraham, how he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And then think of Jonah, indignant that God would save Nineveh. Those are two very different hearts, are they not? (laughs) Abraham boldly, 45, 40, 30, 10. That is a bold prayer. Interceding on behalf of a city that had no right that anyone should intercede for them. And yet who is the one who intercedes? The one who already possesses the promise. And the one who trusts that the judge of all the earth can only do justly. Versus Jonah. (laughs) I love Jonah. I get Jonah. (laughs) God shows mercy and what's Jonah mad at? God! (laughs) I knew you were going to do this! You always do this! (laughs) Don't you know that your standard is supposed to be my standard? (laughs) Don't you know that it's the people that I hate that you're supposed to hate? That's that backwards thinking. Even there, God deals with him tenderly. And he teaches his foolish servant a lesson. He says, how can I not have compassion upon thousands and thousands of souls who don't know their right hand from their left? To be ushered into that posture towards the loss is not a position of weakness. It's a position of strength. To be able to see that the world doesn't know their right hand from their left and look with them not, look at them not with contempt, but with mercy and intercessions for mercy. That's not weakness. That's Christ who stared into a face of utter derangement as the crowd cried, crucify him. There was nothing apparently redeemable about that horde. And what did he pray? You know by this point, because I've been saying it for weeks. Father, forgive them. Um, They know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. That's God. Someone tell me it isn't. That's God. That's your Father. That's the one who's making you like Him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He secured you in His love. A love which has loved you because of its own good pleasure. Do you feel the strength that that gives? Do you sniff it? It's intoxicating. It's almost like 
basking in the sun. May he refresh us with that rich gift as the world becomes more and more chaotic. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you do good, and your mercy is over all that you have made. Refresh us, Lord, in the drought of your love as we prepare to come to this table and see and taste the excellencies of your love extended, not to the worthy, but to sinners. Strengthen us in this, Lord. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.